my name is Amy Gabrielle, and I'll tell you my handle <laughs> on Instagram because everybody gets confused. It's jenny.manhattan.milf, M-I-L-F. Because I started out doing this, I didn't use my real name. Yeah. Because I was, I have an 11-year-old son, so I thought... If the other parents at the school found out. So that was also part of my journey. Let's see, let me go back to not getting married until I was 40. And I met my husband on J-Date. But this is like pre-swipe. So it was, a, you actually had to make a phone call, right? Oh, and like wow, make yeah. a date with the person. <laughs> so What, what is met. a phone call? I, I'm sorry. I'm I know, I know, right? Like what? So we met and then we were together like ever since that. We got married a year later after we met. Because if you don't know what you want by the time you're 40, I don't know. Um, <laughs> anyway, I didn't know what I wanted. Who knew that this was going to happen? So we got married. I had my first and only kid when I was 44. And my son has some mild special needs. So I guess early on, you know, we went through IVF and it took us three years to have our kid. And so it seemed like my 40s were really, I decided I wanted more stability, grew up in New York. I would not call myself a wild child, but I have a video where uh, a little reel that's about my mother wanting me to like, go off and see the world, my dad wanting me to have a government job, right? Yeah. So I didn't know what I wanted. So part of so some points in my life, I was running off and living in Paris. And then another part, I was just working the nine to five. So I think the 40s were, I want to get married and have a kid. And I found somebody who is very stable. And I just kind of embraced that aspect of my life. And so, you know, it was focused on being a wife, a mom, really. We, we were focused on being parents to this child that needed extra attention. And then in 2018, my husband was diagnosed with terminal cancer. I didn't know anything about cancer, like nothing. And he had soft tissue sarcoma, which it's rare, but he had another neurological genetic disorder. and. There was like always a 10% chance that one of his, he had like these fatty tumors that were almost always benign, but there was always a chance one could become cancerous. And by the time we found out about this one, it had already spread to his lungs. And so there were just too many to be able to operate. But even then, I don't think I really understood at first that like he was gonna die. A doctor said to me, well, you know, a good outcome is if he lives for five years. And I'm like, that's a good outcome? I'm like, that's, a, that's not, you know, am I allowed to curse or should yeah, I not Yeah, you can say whatever you'd like. Yeah. Okay, because I was like, that's fucked up. That, yeah. I, that, that's not a good outcome. And, <laughs> but I think the five years stuck in my head. And so this was around October 2018. And he did chemo like once a month. We got into a routine. He handled it really well. COVID came. I know COVID is, was horrible and so many people died. For our family, we got to spend more time together because we rented a place to be out of the city. We had more room. I was working from home. And so we just like spent a lot more time together as a family. So I don't know, we didn't talk about it. It was just like, that was our new life. And chemo stopped working a couple times. He went on a new chemo. And then 
June of 2021, he did a trial, uh, a clinical trial. And that was like the first time he had a horrible reaction. And we were on vacation. We rented a house in Greenwich, Connecticut. And he just was like, I made him stop doing the trial and we thought that he would get better. And he got worse. I sent him to the hospital and we thought they would just drain a little bit of fluid off his lungs. He died a week later of heart failure, basically, because chemo is very toxic. And yeah. the clinical trial, it was pills, but it was still yeah. toxic. So that was like a bit of a shock. I don't think I really like processed, like I was on automatic pilot after that, right? I'm just kind of, we were in the middle of selling our apartment. So I had to find a new apartment. I had to go through everything in our apartment. So I know a lot of widows, like they don't go through their husband's things right away. I didn't have a choice. I just went through everything. I'm, what do I keep? What do I don't, you know, not keep? And so we moved. And that, so he died in August, 2021. By December, I started feeling like I wanna go out. I just, I wanna, like that wild part of me or that exploratory part was like, okay, I'm back. I wanna just try some of these dating apps, which, you know, cause I'm thinking, oh, J-Date, that worked for me. You know, this is all quite new, the swiping stuff. And I was very shy really timid. I remember connecting, like matching with somebody and like, what do I say? And it just seems like it was a challenge for me to get better at doing this thing. It wasn't like I was trying to meet somebody to marry or really date. It was just like, how can I be better? How can I get more attention? And it became kind of therapeutic for me to dress up like in sexy lingerie, do my makeup, and I use my iPhone and I took pictures. And I'd never done this before. My husband, I'm wondering if he's looking down, he's like, what in the world? But it felt very empowering to me. I had a lot of fear of being, I was 54 and now I'm 55, and a widow with a 11, well, now he's 11 year old son, he was nine, when my husband died and thinking like all the guys my age, like they have grown kids, they're not gonna wanna be with someone with a little kid. And then I, I'm thinking, well, but the younger guys, they're not gonna wanna be with a 50 something year old woman. So I, I don't know, I mean, like myself, I don't wanna say a project, but it was just like, it got me out of the day to day. It was almost the physical transformation became like an internal transformation and almost like putting on another character. So like I am Jenny, but I'm Amy too, but it, it helped to keep it kind of separate and compartmentalized because I still, like my other life, I'm a mom and, single mom now. So I'm taking the pictures and stuff. And by September, 2022, it'd been about like eight months, I guess I'm taking the pictures. And I decided, why don't I just, like I have like over 1500, why don't I just post some of them? It'll be kind of like a little gallery, like my own gallery. 
Uh, I'd never had Instagram before. I have Facebook, but I didn't want to post them on my Facebook. So I made this other account. I posted some of them and it wasn't like overnight. I had, you know, thousands of, you know, followers or whatever. It was gradual, but I don't know. I just kept doing it because it was a good distraction, but in a, I felt like it was a healthy way of, I wasn't hurting anybody. I wasn't hurting myself. And it was a way of, I think of it as like an artistic expression because it's like, I am the, the props person, the wardrobe person, I'm the photographer, the editor, the, you know, post-production, I do everything. And so it wasn't just about having the pictures, it was about taking them also and like artistically making them look better and making myself look the best that I could so that it was pleasing aesthetic for me. I don't know if it is for other people, but I assume that it is because I just, I'm almost, it's like, I think I have 5,500 followers now and it's been six months since they started. And then it's gradually, I got a little bit bolder. Um, I started writing, which I had done in the past. I had published a couple of stories, nothing like on medium, nothing like in a magazine. And so I just started writing it's 2,200 characters that you can put in a post or a caption. And I, I started writing about grief, started writing about being a widow, about being a single mom, about feeling like an imposter, about feeling empowered, about women in midlife, feeling sexual, how I felt invisible because I don't see any women over like 30 in lingerie ads. And that's basically my whole feed. You know, all the advertisements are lingerie. And I decided I'm gonna be an advocate. I'm gonna be an advocate for women in midlife and we wanna be seen. And there's a big movement. There's a lot of stuff now about menopause in the news. And the thing is, I feel like the sexuality part puts a lot of women off. So most of my followers are men and they're all ages, but I'm surprised by how many are like in their 20s and 30s. I, I didn't realize that like, I mean, yes, obviously MILF is a, you know, I know what that means, but I didn't realize it was such a big yeah. <laughs> or universal like type of fantasy. I think it's funny. But there's, a, there's kind of this like women's movement, which I grew up in being, we're not going to be looked at as sexual objects. And I can understand if it's somebody else that is, that was posting my pictures, but it's like me, I'm doing this for me. And I'm not saying that any other woman has to do it. This is just my own way of expressing myself. And I've been asked or advised to tone it down or to bring more women in. And I'm like, maybe they need to tone it up. Like, you know, maybe they need to like turn up the, the volume and, you know, reinvent not just like what they want to do with their lives now that their kids are grown and moved out of the house. But, you know, like as women, you know, we're still sexy. We still want to have sex. We still want to be desired like 
by our and feel good about ourselves. And so that's what I'm, you know, trying to get out there with my message and visibility, right? Like we're not invisible. So I don't know if that like answers. I think that, that gives that gives quite a bit of backgrounds on your story and and okay. sort of why a little bit of the why behind what you're doing. I would love to delve in a little bit more about all of it. <laughs> I think <laughs> what I want to do is drill into that time right before he passed and right after he passed in terms of what how you were thinking about it, what do you remember a lot of it? Is it a blur? Is it? Do you remember the feeling of when that? Because it seems like there was that big turning point after the experimental drug uh, didn't work. It seems like it was a quick downhill after that. Um, yeah. What that experience was like in terms of like you and and maybe coming to. Was it a realization of, oh, that like you know because when the doctor says you might have five years, it's it's such a, like you get that there's something might be at the end coming soon, but you don't, it's not tangible yet. And then was it more tangible? Was it making like, what was that like? And then right after he passed, like what, when did it really hit you? So those two things. Okay. So the only reason it's hard for me to talk about is because I have guilt about it because when he was first diagnosed, I was very angry with him. I felt betrayed. I felt like um, he hadn't taken care of himself the way that he was supposed to. Then I felt I hadn't done enough as a wife. I know that cancer is random, but in this instance, there was the chance there is cancer in his family. His mother had died in her 40s of ovarian cancer. and. So I just, that's how I dealt with it. Instead of the pain, it was, I, it was easier to feel powerful. And like, I could keep moving by being fucking furious. Yeah. And I was just very angry. And that kind of mellowed, right? Because we got into the routine and everything. But when he, you know, started to really get sick, I started to feel like annoyed again, like, okay, this is July and August. This is like our summertime. I, I planned this whole vacation and we have this pool and this is our time together. And I'm, you know, it's sort of the end of COVID and I'm gonna have to go back into my office. And why is this happening now? And, and so I had sent him back to Memorial Sun Kettering by himself in a, in a lift, like an Uber back. And I really thought that it would be like a day or two. And so that was on a Wednesday. Every day I would talk with the doctor in the morning. We do, he would do rounds. And so I talked with Steven also, and we were texting. And they were telling me, you know, he needs another day. He needs another day. And by Friday, we need to keep him for the weekend. And he was very weak. My mother-in-law, so Steven's stepmother was with him. And I'm thinking, I think I'm knowing at this point that, that he is not going to get better, but the doctors are talking about sending him to intensive rehab in the next week. And I'm thinking, what the, what do you, 
So it came to be Sunday and we went back to the city and by Monday, I just had this feeling like something terrible. Like I couldn't get to the hospital fast enough. And because again of COVID, visiting hours were like very set and you could only have two people visit per day and they couldn't, once you left, you couldn't go back. And so anybody under 12 wasn't allowed in. So my son wasn't gonna be allowed to go in. And my brother-in-law, Stephen's brother was in town from Seattle, unrelated to him being in the hospital. They were in the city for another reason, but I let my mother-in-law and his brother take turns. But by Monday, I was just like, I have to get in there. And that's when they told me that he was gonna be on hospice. And it was like, I already knew it, but like, I don't know why they weren't telling me that. And I, I felt like I would have made different decisions if they had told me. And it's a story that I've heard over and over yeah. again from people who, whose loved ones are dying from cancer that the doctors don't tell them yeah. what is going on. And so end of life is kind of you're robbed of those last few weeks. And, you know, we had a two bedroom apartment and I'm thinking like, I'm gonna have a hospital bed in the middle of my living room and he's gonna be like screaming in pain. And like, I had, I knew some things about like hospice and I started like panicking. I, I was like, what am I gonna do? I talked to my mother-in-law about maybe him doing it at her apartment or, and, then by the next day, he, he had had like something in the night that had happened and my son was with his friends and, you know, they were trying to, again, just trying to wean him off of this high flow oxygen that you could only be on in the hospital until he could, they could wean him off to get him on the, the oxygen you can take home. Again, I'm thinking, okay, you don't get weaned off that, right? Like you just are gonna need more and more. Why aren't they telling me? And so when I went on Wednesday, it was like a week later, I had gone, I went in the morning and I got there. There's a whole line of people outside waiting for 10 o'clock to get in and a nurse comes out and gets me and says, I'm gonna bring you in now. He, we had to move him to a different floor. And I said, oh, okay, so, he was upstairs. They didn't tell me exactly what it was, but it was like a room with like just him and somebody else. And he was not conscious anymore. He was hooked up to a, a monitor like for your heart and measuring yeah. your oxygen. And it was in the eighties. And like, I know that you can't live, right? So I'm just like, so I called my mother-in-law and I told her to come and giving Stephen like antibiotics and Tylenol, like IV. And I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Like, that's not gonna do anything for him. Like, and so they, well, you know, we didn't know if you wanna keep him on the oxygen until other people could come. And I'm thinking like, I don't want my son, like he, he was already, yeah. he was like at Legoland. I'm like, I don't want him to see his dad. So. Basically, my son didn't get to say goodbye to his dad because this happened so fast and yeah. the doctor didn't tell me that this was a possibility. 
or a probability, really. So I decided that I was going to have him taken off of the, the oxygen. And it took all day because they wanted to, they had to put in orders for like a morphine. They said it would be very hard for me to see him gasping for breath, yeah. but they could push the meds. And so it took all day for the meds to come up. So I was, was there at six o'clock at night. My mother-in-law had to leave because she had to be there for my son when he got dropped off. So that was just very intense. Um, you know, my mother-in-law said, you know, we don't have to, she says, when I said I was gonna take the oxygen off, she said, well, isn't that like pulling the plug? And I'm like, she's like, we don't have to tell anybody about that, right? And I'm like, and so again, it's like my anger yeah. just comes up. And I am like, I said, I'm proud of myself. Other people are not strong enough to do what I'm doing. And so fuck them. And by six at night, they told me that once they took the oxygen off, um, he would die in a few minutes. And so I played like his favorite music and I held his hand and told him he was the best dad and the best husband and just sobbed, sob, sob. And then he, you know, they told me he's gone. And I said, it was almost like this like calm came over me. This like, I have to like, now my son is the priority. I have to go pick him up. So I said, okay, I just, I wanted his wedding ring. And then I just talked with the nurses. I was donating his body to a, a medical, to a hospital that has a, a medical school. And I just had to organize the funeral home to come and pick him up, which I, I did very quickly. And then I just walked a couple blocks to my mother-in-law and I picked up my son. And I didn't say anything until we got home, but in the lift on the way home, he's asking me about, you know, daddy. And it, uh, I'm just like, well, we'll talk about it, you know, when we get home. And he's nine at the time. And uh, we got home and I said, well, you know, daddy was very sick and um, he was in the hospital and he died. And I just, I kind of broke down and my son was like, do you want me to, to leave you alone? Or he says something like, "I, you know, I, I can leave you alone." And I said, um, "I said, no, no, you know, it's, it's okay." And he's like, "Because, you know, he broke the ice because he's just like, oh, you look like you really need to be alone." And I'm like, "No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm, I'm totally fine." And one of my girlfriends was coming the next day from. She lives in Montreal, and so she came with me. We organized like a Zoom memorial. I don't really remember, like, she was with me for two weeks. All I remember really is, like, my son did a lot of Lego projects, and we had, like, a lot of takeout and Starbucks coffee. <laughs> um, and then I was just immediately into, like, the routine, because that was the end of August, and it was Memorial Day, and then school was starting for my son. So I had, you know, and then we were moving. So I had to pack. It was just, just go, go, go. Yeah. And, and that was just very focused on like getting through the first year because I kind of didn't know anything about grief. And I realized that most people don't know anything really about like deep 
grief. And we're kind of, you know, taught that it's like these stages that you go through, right? And it's very linear. <laughs> and and it's, it's not. But like, as I made it through, it was funny because the first, the first holiday was Halloween. And he loved, my husband had loved Halloween. That was kind of hard. But then Thanksgiving, Christmas, like I just did up Christmas. We never did Christmas, but I got a tree and it just, it wasn't until I think a year, it was like a year last August that I really started to feel like, oh, fuck, like this is my life now. Like I, here I was thinking like, oh, I made it through all the firsts, right? The first, yeah. this without him, the first birthday, the first anniversary, you know, like first the anniversary of his death or whatever. And 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 I'm rebuilding my life and everything looks good. And September came around. And I'm just like, so I feel and that coincides with like me deciding to post my pictures. I, it was kind of like, what other outlet do I have yeah. that I am not defined just by my grief, that I'm a person, that I'm, I don't know, like an attractive person. I'm a, I don't know, worthy of, of attention. I'm not, I'm more than just this like crying ball of snot and grief. <laughs> and that's, kind of where I'm still at, I think, yeah. right now. It's no joke. Grief is no joke. I think it's also, you know, my husband's diagnosis and, and his death also kind of took away, both, you know, during this time, both my parents also died and Stephen's father died. And I really am not able to grieve those deaths because in my mind, I'm like, they were older and they had long, good lives. And this is the natural order of things. But, you know, my, now my son doesn't have a father and my husband was 53. And he was just like, such a, a good man, like such a loving person, quiet, shy. I was definitely the outgoing one. He loved to cook. He made my son's all his baby food from scratch. He loved music. We didn't have the same taste in music, but he, he loved music. And so I knew like Sean Colvin was like one of his favorites. And I played her album when he died. And so, yeah, it's just trying to make some kind of meaning out of the meaningless, right? Yeah. Like there's no reason why any of this happened and the timing of it, but can try and keep his, what he was about alive yeah. um, and move forward in my life because I have a child that I have to raise by myself. And 55 might, you know, when I was 30, 55 seemed really old. But now that I am that, it seems, you know, I'm still alive. I still yeah. am vital. <laughs> so I still got, you know, a lot of life left to live. And I don't, I don't want it to be underwater, right? Like yeah. in, in grief and tears. So, so that's, that's what happened. Well, the, 
very sorry for your loss and thank you so much for sharing all those details because I know that's very difficult to relive a little bit and it's, it's uh, brutal. There's a lot of things that similarities in, in what I saw with my mom that that you had to deal with and cancer is uh, it's a nasty motherfucker. <laughs> that's really what it is. It is. It is. Um, But I I would like to say, though, that, and maybe this is true for you, too, because you're doing this work, that it is brutal, it's hard, my voice may crack, I may cry, but it heals to talk about it and to, to kind of normalize it. And the more we don't talk about it, the more isolated we feel. I think it's in some ways harder for other people because... They don't know what to say or it scares them, right? Because here, you know, we are like the worst nightmare coming true where it's kind of this abstract thing that happens to other people when it's like a friend, it's someone in your life. It's like, oh, fuck, if that could happen to them, you know, that could happen to me. I don't get, you know, mad at at that because I wonder if... It was reversed. You know, would I go jumping in to be with in someone else's life that's dealing with this really hard thing that is like staring me in the face that it was my worst nightmare? I don't know, right? Like, and and yeah. I won't because I don't have a time machine. I can't go back. But like, I don't judge. So the, the thing I just want to do is really share more about the grief experience, um, you know, some things that people could say or do that might make it easier rather than just saying nothing. And yeah, just, you know, it's not, people people say, oh, I could never, you know, or I can't imagine. I'm like, well, you could (laughs) if you wanted to, right? You know? Well, you can't imagine, but you definitely could. There's... You could, right. You can do some really amazing things when you're put into situations that are unimaginable. Right. Well, right. And when people say, I could never be as strong, it's like, you don't have a choice. Yeah. And people say, well, you could just curl up in a ball or whatever. And it's like, yeah, but that's not really like who I am. That's not who you are. Right. That's not so living. I, that's not living. Most of the, you know, my friends, they would, God forbid anything happened, but they're doers. They're, yeah. They wouldn't just lay down and maybe take some breaks, some grief vacations or whatever. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, that's the thing. We just, we move forward. But when the grief does hit, it doesn't feel softer. It no. just, for me, it, it comes less yeah. often. But when I do feel it, it's scary in a way because it feels like it's not going to end. Even though I cognitively, I'm telling myself, you know that it ends because it has in the past and this will end, but the body like holds on to that like fight or flight feeling. So one of the things that I've learned is like talk therapy alone is just can't get to that kind of trauma. It takes like some kind of, there's like somatic work. There's, I've been doing EMDR, which is a type of like light stream therapy. Yeah. And it helps. It definitely helps. I mean, I think talk therapy is great. I've done it for years. But I think the thing about grief is that it's also, it's a trauma. Like, 
it changes your brain chemistry. It's as if like you got hit in the head with a frying pan or something yeah. and you're kind of like, so maybe if more people knew that, it, it wouldn't be such a taboo thing to talk about. And also dying, right? Like we're all gonna die at one point. And some people are, are going to die of diseases. Some will be in accidents, but you know, People put off like planning yeah. what they want. They put off doing things, but also just like planning, you know, like what do you want at the end of life? Like what things that that we had in place and that I do talk about with my friends, insurance. You have children, right? You don't know what's gonna happen. It's a double-edged sword, right? It's like you can live fuller knowing about that it could end sooner rather than later but i don't know that it's unless you and your partner die simultaneously it's looking pretty like good odds that someone's going to be a widow at some point yeah and even if you're 80 you still have to know how to go on right because for every minute that you're still alive you're alive you're breathing yeah you know i think uh we really need to normalize talking about death a little bit more and mm -hmm. it's tough, right? It, it's a very difficult conversation for people who haven't experienced grief because mm -hmm. ignorance is bliss a little bit, I guess, you know, like when you're, you know, I, before my mom passed, I wouldn't really like to think about death. Death was sort of like this, it's a scary proposition when you're, not familiar with it and it's a big step for people to go to scary places and i completely understand that you know i'm like oh we should talk about death more so go up to in the street be like all right let's talk about death it's like i get it i get that it's not something that we want to be doing it's just it's going back to what you said it, it leads to that fuller life in the long run obviously like it is incredibly uncomfortable and it's uh can be a little depressing initially when you start talking about it. You know, when when we start talking about it initially, it's it's definitely not the lightest of subjects. But I don't know, I'm a big proponent now. Be. Yeah, it's just like it, but it could you, be so much easier, yeah. right? It was normalized, and if we took it together, like grief. If you feel grief, then you feel love, right? Yes. If you yeah. die then you live and if we can kind of put those things together my son asked me sometimes like why do bad things happen or or why do i have homework or you know like things yeah. that he, you know or why does this day suck or whatever and i said look if every day was happy and rainbow and lollipops then you would not appreciate it at all yeah. because you would say you're bored so we need to have this these differences and I know that there are people that really prefer to live their life more even keel, right? So the highs are never too high and the, the lows are never too low. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just have always been like a kind of more sensitive person. And so I just feel things more deeply. And I've described this 
feeling of sadness. It's called like, um, like an exquisite, like it's an exquisite pain and it makes you think about like a religious experience. I am not a religious person, but there is something to that, like, you know, that, that hurts so good. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> yeah, it, there's something to it. And maybe if we normalized that, then it wouldn't be like, so we would say, hey, let's talk about death. It's scary because it's unknown, but there are a lot of things that we don't know, yeah. right? And we don't know why antidepressants work. We don't know what's out there in the ocean, like, right? How deep, we can't go all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. But it's like we can explore and go deeper into it and learn. Yeah. That's what I would like. I'm not a religious person either, but it's funny. I think I have, uh, after my mom passed, I had a, I don't know, I have a newfound respect and understanding for religion. And that, I mean, I guess like my attitude towards it changed because what I experienced was uh, an understanding that I don't know anything. The randomness of death made me understand that logic can't be applied everywhere. You know, like there's just a randomness to everything and we don't understand everything. You know, to it's hubris to feel like we are in control and understand. It's an interesting place to be when, for me, I was a very logic-driven person before my mom passed. You know, I was very like one plus two equals three. And everything has to fit neatly in these mental boxes of like, why? Mm -hmm. And then that changes and everything shifts. And it's in, religion's always an interesting thing when I think about it now, because it's this, it's almost like it's such a fascinating like concept now. Any spirituality to me is fascinating now, because once your brain changes like that, once it gets hit with the frying pan, as you're saying, you know, it, a lot of the way you thought about things changes and, and you become a lot more open to everything, I feel like. Just so you become more empathetic to people, I think. You know, I think that's what grief oh, does. Definitely. It makes you a lot more empathetic. And I think, definitely, yeah, it's, it's just think... a fascinating way to think about the world and death and the things around you. And I try to think, of, like, how could I get to this place without that grief? And I'm not sure how. So when I say things like, I wish we could normalize death more, I'm not sure how we do that because I have no clue how Ian five years ago would get to that place. I really don't. But I'm open to ideas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I know. I mean, that's the whole point of kind of telling these this story is I think to help people get to the place where we are without having to suffer the deep loss that we felt. Maybe even taking other, there's so many different kinds of loss that yeah. are not death, right? There's divorce, there's losing a job, there's all kinds of heartbreak. And I think the normalizing is seeing that there is a huge catalyst for growth in feeling 
the grief from whatever the loss is. It's an opportunity to grow. And so speaking about it, I can't give somebody that feeling, but yeah. I could change maybe their mindset a little bit into something shitty is going to happen to everybody, yeah. right? Like nobody leads a perfect life because then we wouldn't appreciate the good stuff. And so maybe thinking about a different spin about when I do lose something, when I do feel grief, when I am feeling like less than I want to be, when I'm feeling like a crappy mom or um, that this really horrible feeling, like I can make something good come out of it. And we can't experience it for another person. But like, as I get older, my, my friends, all my friends' parents are dying. And like, that's what happens. And so I know that they're going to feel it too, but maybe, you know, by, by letting people know that you are going to be able to live through it and to grow and to even help other people, it wouldn't be as scary. Um, I, I think when you're talking about religion and spirituality, there is definitely, I mean, I wished that I was more religious in this at this point because there would be a, a certain kind of faith yeah, and comfort. that would give me a peace that I don't have because I am this, you know, I will, or I was this like really control, thinking that I had more control than yeah. I actually did. And now I just, there's only three things that you can control in this world. And it's your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions. So basically it's things are gonna happen and then it's how you show up yeah. to meet it. And whether it's how you feel and they all, in it's CBT, right? Like cognitive behavioral therapy and with the triangle model with thoughts and behavior and feelings and they all, the arrows go both ways. One leads to another, yeah. right? They influence each other. So it's like, I, I could, think really negative thoughts and think my life is over and he's the only person that I would ever love. And now that he's gone, I'm just gonna live out the rest of my days, focus on my son and nothing about me. But I have control over what I think. And so I'm not going to think that. I don't have control over if I get that next job or if I win the lottery or, you know, whatever it is, I don't have control, but I have, you know, I can control my feelings or my thoughts and the thoughts will then translate into my actions and feelings. And so we're not as powerless as we think. Are you using your Instagram as part of that power, right? Like you, it's a, it's a physical manifestation of that feeling. I have things where I'm, I'm doing this podcast, right? That's this is in my control to physically manifest this power that I know that like I can control how I feel most of the time. <laughs> so is that yeah. for you is that like it, it while obviously there's this controlling feeling confident and sexy is that that underlying level of control of like how you move forward in that? Yeah, it's that's really true because Like I control taking my own photographs. I control what I decide to post. Nobody is doing that for me. 
and then I decide how I feel about it because I can't control how other people feel yeah. about it or how, if they judge or, or if they just sexualize me into something that I'm not like that. I have no control over that, but it's making me feel good and it's giving me a platform to also write about some things that I've learned about grief and how I'm moving forward. And that some days I feel, I wouldn't even say days, it's moments, right? Yeah. It's, it, nothing happens in a whole day, like you have, you know, a whole day of being sad or happy. Like there are moments that come and go. And so, yeah, so I mean, I am, that's the platform that I, chose to use just because it's has that visual component that I like and I mean I wish <laughs> I wish I could write more but sometimes it, I spill over into my own comments but it's a way of expressing myself and feeling better about myself and again like that's what I have control over yeah so are you gonna add a something written to this that's outside of the Instagram because it sounds like you are really I, enjoying I, the written aspect. I'm not, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, I think I am going to be putting together, I can't decide if, I, if I'm going to write like a book about it or kind of just pull things from, from the things I've already written and put it together. Or I have kind of an idea to do like an anthology, maybe be the lead author on an anthology. My theme would be, I don't think it has to be just widows, but like the fucked up or crazy things that grief made me do. <laughs> because it does, it pushes you to do things and be more yourself than you were before. But since it's so different from maybe the way that other people have seen you, it looks kind of crazy. Yeah. So like people from, you know, who knew me like from even a year ago or, whatever it would they would never think that I would ever do this and it does kind of go back to maybe an earlier me from before I got married and we didn't have this technology back then I didn't have access to all these like editing tools yeah. and having my phone be a camera and there's something about creating I think that also really helps move through grief yeah. Something that you lost, something is dead, but you can make something new, like doing the podcast, you know, writing a book, painting, photography. It's writing. It's a great way of like working through it is yeah. to make something. And start to understand a little bit more about like there's that cliche that all great art comes out of pain, like serious loss or pain. And you're like, oh, no, I get it now. Like every, when I make stuff now, it's a lot better than what I before. Like, <laughs> this makes a lot of sense. I think it's because it pushes you to take more chances. Yeah. That's why. And I think that when you have less, when something bad happens and you're like, oh, well, it's not my husband dying, yeah, you, know? Exactly. Like, you know, right? It's not my mom dying. So so what if I make a fool of myself? That's yeah. like nothing, right, compared to the other stuff that I've been through. So, so in that way, I think it's maybe not better, but bolder. And yeah. so the more that there's that saying, like, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail, yeah. right? And it's kind of like, yeah, that's how I feel. Yeah. I know I can't fail, or I know that... 
you know, worst thing that happened to me, it can't happen because it already Yeah, happened. exactly. <laughs> right. A couple of days ago, I was having a conversation with a, a woman who lost her dad, a, you know, younger woman, lost her dad. I guess whenever you lose them is too early, but would be considered very early. And she was talking about these things that she wanted. And I was like, listen, if you want something and you, you got to go for it. And if you fail, it's not going to be worse than losing your dad, right? And she's like, well, actually, yeah, that's a good point. And I'm like, yeah, like literally, like, it's not going to feel worse than that. So, you know, you might as well. Fuck it, right? Like, <laughs> Right, right. And the consequences are not going to be that's for the most part, unless you're like practicing your archery, yeah. like in a crowded yeah, and, room, and, right? And your targets like, happen to be your no loved one's ones. Die. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, all right, my pride might be wounded. So I think that that's the perspective. The more you're, you're willing to fail, the more you are going to be successful. Yeah. And that's really something I've been teaching my son. And I have a post about this, about teaching, especially da our daughters. I don't have a daughter, but to fail because, you know, girls really want to be like perfectionists. Yeah. And they've shown that they don't raise their hand in school unless they know the answer. And so there's a perception that, well, one, they don't, you know, get as much attention because they're not raising their hand. Two, there's a perception that maybe they don't know the answer. And three, if they don't know the answer and they don't say anything, they have no opportunity to learn the right answer. So we wouldn't be talking on computers. We wouldn't have any technology if people were not afraid to fail because nobody does, nobody's perfect the first time out. Yeah. The first time you try something new, like you have to it, have that resilience to try, fail, and then get up and keep trying. Yeah. And, and so I think that's what this does, this grief. It kind of, it's like a, like a cattle prod or something, yeah. you know, like I, when I said you get hit in the head with the frying pan, it's not all horrible, right? Yeah. Maybe it's the part of your brain that stimulates the like, I don't give a fuck, yeah. right? Like, that, yeah. I don't know where that is. I don't <laughs> give a fuck of your brain. But, you know, and then that kind of allows you to do things that, like I said, kind of the crazy shit that grief made me do. Yeah. Maybe it's not so crazy, right? To yeah. have those dreams or do that thing that seems like, whoa, that's weird. One of the last things I'd love to cover before we jump <laughs> off is is your son. And what has his journey been like since his father passed? And how is that in you know, those conversations and managing that, like, what's that been like? He has been really doing great. He is very high functioning on the autism spectrum. And during the pandemic, when like the public schools couldn't reopen, we decided to send him to a private school and it's very small. And the great thing is they have a lot of emotional support, not just for him, but for me. He has his own social worker and I meet with her once a week as well. And so I feel like he has this like whole support system that's not just me and people who like know what the fuck they're doing, right? Yeah. Like people <laughs> who are trained in this kind of thing. And so he doesn't talk about it very much 
I know I just had parent-teacher conference yesterday, and you know he's doing so well socially, emotionally. Like those are the things that are really important to me are, are the social, emotional. He's very bright. I mean, he he tests as like gifted. I'm not worried about him academically at all. That will come, but I just want him to feel good about himself, and I think. He does. He's a happy kid. He's social. I am the one that feels more guilty because I, I feel like I need to be better to make up for the fact that he doesn't have a dad. But the very fact that I'm grieving sometimes makes it hard to, for me to be as patient and tolerant and with it yeah. a mom that I would have been. So that's also like it's me trying to let go of the kind of mother that I wanted to be because I just I'm just different now. And as long as I have the feedback from his school that he's, you know, he's doing well with me, but it's always like nice to hear the professionals say like he's really he's empathetic. I think it has made him more empathetic as well. He doesn't live it on a day-to-day -day basis the way that I do. And some other kids, I know some other kids are like deep mourning yeah. for the parent that they lost. And he really, you know, from the very beginning when Stephen died, he said, when am I getting a new dad? And I was not upset by that. And I know other people would be like, well, he didn't love his. No, it's that his dad was amazing. Yeah. And why wouldn't he want that again? Right. That kind of broke my heart to kind of explain that even if there's another man in my life, there's that person who made his baby food. Right. Yeah. And went on all the adventures with him that isn't here anymore. And that can't be replaced. So, yeah, it, you know, it, Maybe he will have to go through more of his mourning of that as he gets older and kind of realizes more about what he lost. I don't, I yeah, mean, he doesn't, the, the you know, he can't conceptualize okay. it. But I have to say that I'm grateful for that because navigating my own grief is difficult. And, you know, to help him if he was really deeply grieving would be very challenging, I think, yeah. for me. So he's doing really great. And I always just want people to know that it's not that he didn't love his dad, it's that he loved him yeah. so much, I think, that, and that his dad did such a great job when he was here that he's thriving, Yeah, that, you know. I think, uh high functioning autism, right? You have very logic driven, like, it's very like, yeah. this person was amazing. Can I get another one? Like, that's, yeah. it's, I think people don't sometimes will like skip over the fact that like, that's the computation in their head. It's not just like, Oh, like, let's get a new dad. It's like, no, no, no. I want somebody to be awesome. Like that person, like, how do we get do that right, again? Right. And it's like, Oh, well, that's not, you know, like that explanation of like how to get to that point, that's the conversation that takes a long time. But right. I think people misread that and they don't make that connection. Right. Like, just like any kid, they're like, they want that amazing person again. They, they, they want that right. that figure. 
Right. Yeah. And they want me to have the help yeah. that I had so I can be the mom that I was yeah. before. And, you know, the other day he's like, why are you so grumpy? You know, other moms aren't so grumpy. And I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I said, well, first of all, I'm sure they are grumpy, plenty of them. But second of all, like your friends, their moms, they have husbands that are helping and we're doing it, the two of us. And, you know, every family is different. We all have different circumstances and this is ours. And so sometimes I've noticed that my tolerance for frustration has gone down. And just at the same time, when his is going up, yeah. the older he gets, the more he can tolerate frustration. And and so we're like, we're growing together. Yeah. And yeah. there's beauty in that. There really yeah. is. Yeah. So I think this is where we'll, uh, we'll end this episode. <laughs> Amy, once again, where... Can people see your Instagram? It's jenny.manhattan.milf. All right. And then they can see your way of expressing yourself and your grief and, and your confidence. And I think it's yeah. I think it's beautiful that you know you can do that. And it's, uh, I'm fascinated by every way that people express their, their grief in, in any sort of artistic form. Thank you so much for your time and and coming oh, on the show. You. Yeah, no, you have some great questions and this is a great experience. So thank you very much. Thanks.